let's stand and take our Bibles, please. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. If your neighbor next to you doesn't have a Bible, or maybe you're a visitor here today, you don't have a Bible, please ask one of our members to share their Bible with you. And we do want you to be looking at the King James Version translation just so there's no, you don't miss anything there as we preach to the Word of God this morning. John chapter 9, verse 25. Again, we're so thankful you're here today, and we're praying God will do a great work in your heart, and we're praying for this service to be an unchangeable moment, an unforgettable moment for all of us. Verse 25. Now, therefore, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When therefore he had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with, the spear, with, with, his, with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, with his, and his record is true, and, that, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe." Father, this morning we are so thankful for the reading of the Scriptures, and I believe as we read the Gospels and the New Testament epistles about the cross and the suffering of Christ, Lord, I pray that it never gets old. I pray that it never gets to be something we become careless or indifferent about, but I pray that, Lord, it would put a tear in our eye. Lord, I pray it would put a tug in our heart. And, Lord, even as Jesus was pierced in his side and forthwith came blood and water, I pray that, God, it would, our hearts and our souls would be pierced through by the sword of the Lord, which is your word. Uh, Lord, of just the intensity of the suffering and endurance that Jesus went through. Father, we're thankful to be here today, but we need a word from God. I need enablement today that my thoughts would be clear, that, Lord, the word from my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be clean and acceptable before you, would be edifying and building up of the faith of the believers here today. We're praying, God, this morning in this service that you'll do a great, mighty work in our hearts. I pray for any here today, and I know there are some who have never placed their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior, that, God, the salvation uh, narrative that's given here over and over again would speak to their hearts, and I pray that today would be the day they'd be born into the family of God. Bless our service today this morning, and we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In John chapter 19, which is where we're at this morning, there's many, many different themes that could be preached on from this, but we're just going to preach one message today. But in John 19, we find one of the most moving, stirring, sorrowful, 
heart-wrenching and life-changing events that ever occurred. This morning we're studying what happened at the cross. You'll notice in this passage of Scripture that the cross is mentioned recurrently. In John chapter 19, it's found a minimum of four times. The word cross is found a minimum of 28 times in the New Testament. When we read the word cross in this passage of Scripture, we see some things that drive home its personalness and its nearness to us. For example, we find that it's referenced to as the cross in several passages of Scripture. In this morning's passage in verse 19, it's called the cross. You'll notice this. It says, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. Generically, it's spoken of as the cross. And then more specifically, in John 19, 17, it's referenced as, the, as uh, his cross, that is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 19, 25, specifically, it is not focusing on the cross that the thieves died on, but it's spoken of as the cross of Jesus. Later on, we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, Paul, in taking us back and speaking about the cross, and specifically the preaching of the cross, calls it the cross of Christ. We read over in Galatians 6, 14, it's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul, writing about the cross, speaks about the death of the cross. And over in Colossians 1.20, it's referred to as the blood of the cross. And in Colossians 2.14, he speaks of our sins being nailed to the cross. Each reference to the cross emphasizes the cross upon which our Lord Jesus Christ died. When we think of the cross, we think of punishment, we think of cruelty, we think of condemnation, we think of death. Because anyone who is placed on a cross died on that cross. In the... Um, Historians tell us that the crucifixion perhaps was one of the most brutal and most shameful form of punishment and death that was inflicted upon an individual. It was invented by the Assyrians. The Assyrians passed it down, or, or the Babylonians kind of picked it up from there. Alexander the Great took it and, and, and spread it throughout the Grecian world and all throughout the Mediterranean area. And then when the Grecians were, were overcome by Rome, the Romans took it, and for 500 years they perfected this torturous method called the crucifixion. There are many, many things that the Romans did that were very cruel and awful. If you read Gibbon's book, The Rise and Fall of Rome, you'll see, read about some of those. If you read some of the historical narratives about Rome, you'll read just about many, many cruel things they did. But the cruelest and the meanest, the worst uh, of all sufferings was to be nailed to the cross. The crucifixion in Roman times was specifically given, applied only to slaves, to disgraced soldiers, to Christians and foreigners. And so if you can imagine, it was a very narrow listing of people. Criminals, disgraced soldiers, slaves, and to Christians. Very rarely would a Roman citizen be placed on a cross. When a person was on a cross, there was just one ultimate thing. They were placed there to die. And before even they would get to the cross, there would be intense, terrible suffering the person would go through. They said that in most cases, because of the great suffering an individual went through, through scourging and other types of things, by the time they got on the cross, many of these people that were crucified there, they had already expired or passed on from this life. And so typically, if a person was placed on a cross, they could hang there from anywhere from a minimum of four hours to as much as four days, depending on the individual's endurance and capability. In almost every case, a person that died on the cross wasn't from the loss of blood necessarily, but was from the fact that they would just they would be asphyxiated it's almost like like a, a hanging there because their lungs would fill up with fluid and because of all the pressure enduring there and so there'd be a loss of fluid a lot of loss of blood but eventually the person would have what they call hypovolemic shock because there's a la 
lack of oxygenization in their blood, and the blood would start to congeal inside of their wounds. And uh, because of that and the lack of uh, fluids in their body, the person would die of a major heart attack and organ failure. When you look at all of those things and and think about it, it was a very, very terrible thing. This morning we are looking at John chapter 19 as we look at the truth about the cross. And I want us just to go back to Calvary for a few minutes today. Go back back 2,000 years in time. And I just want to answer the question, what happened at the cross? What happened at the cross? Notice several things this morning. Go back with me to the verses we just read in verses 25 to 27. And the first thing I want you to notice with me, there was sympathy at the cross. There was sympathy at the cross. Jesus had endured a horrible evening of false accusations, beatings, scourgings, mockings, and cruelty. Jesus had been beaten almost to death. He had been scourged terribly by the Roman guards. We'll talk about that in a few minutes here. And then beaten up, disfigured, a number of things like that. And then he was, then the soldiers took him and placed the cross on his shoulder, if you would, at least the, the wooden beam that went across. And he was to carry that cross to a location called Golgotha or Golgotha or Calvary there. He was so, Jesus was so beaten. He was so exhausted. He was in such terrible pain. He could barely make his way there. A man comes along the way by the name of Simon. He's known as Simon the Cyrenian because he was from the country of Cyrene. Most likely he was a man from northern Africa who was just passing through there at that time. Had no idea that, that he would be taken at that moment and the cross be placed on his shoulders. And Simon would carry that cross for Jesus until he got to Golgotha there at the top of the hill. Jesus following him, being assisted by soldiers there. As the the cross was placed down, Jesus was impaled on the cross, and there Jesus is placed. The cross is made uh, made to stand upright. Jesus has been nailed to that cross. Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth, between the sky, if you would, and, and earth, and he's there suffering. Along that way, as you'll notice in verse 25, we see something interesting happen. Jesus is at the cross. The soldiers have gambled away his garments there, including the coat that his mother uh, made for him, which I'll say something about in a minute. And the Bible focuses our attention. In fact, the Apostle John focuses our attention as if the spotlight goes on on his mother Mary, uh, about on four women, his mother Mary, his mother's sister, another Mary by the name of, uh, who is the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, if we had time, each of these four women had a story and testimony of their own that would rivet our hearts and touch our lives. They were special women that were devoted attendants to Jesus at the cross. They were devoted disciples. I'm just thankful this morning that there were some ladies there that had a devotion for Jesus and a love for God. There were some ladies there whose lives had been so touched by the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that they went all the way to the cross with him and stood with him there. And about foremost of all those ladies, we see this woman here by the name of Mary, his mother. And you'll notice here at this time that these women are there and they're witnessing what's going on. They, they've heard the thud of the nails going through Jesus' Jesus' hands. They've seen this crown of thorns, which I'm thankful for Mrs. Mrs. Martinez making this for us. But this crown of thorns right here that was thrust on the head of our Lord Jesus Christ, piercing his brow and blood streaming from his forehead, the beatings that he endured. You can imagine his mother, she followed this entourage of people as it got to the cross. She worked her way through the crowd. She came up, you can imagine this, this, this pulpit right here being the cross where Jesus 
Jesus is at. And Mary is not, not in a distance. She's up close at the cross. She's right there at the foot of the cross. She's there with her sister. She's there with Mary, the wife of Cleophas. She's there with Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons in her. Jesus cast out those demons. And everywhere significant when you find Christ somewhere, Mary Magdalene was there. I mean, I'm talking about ladies. Their lives got changed. Their lives got turned around. They were just in love with the fact that they knew that Jesus was God's son come in the flesh. And they knew that Jesus was the son of God. And they put their faith in Christ as Savior. And here's his mother, Mary, if you'll notice verse 25. Mary's there at the foot of the cross. She's witnessed what was once her son, now a disfigured form of a human being. She looked at his face, which was disfigured. She looked at the places where he had a neatly shaven beard, where there were chunks of hair that were pulled out. She saw the blood streaming down his face. She'd seen perhaps his eyes possibly closed, or at least one eye closed, from the repeated beatings by the Roman soldiers. She looked at this man, which was her son. She saw the muscular body that he had because he grew up in a carpenter's home and knew something about manual labor and working with his hands. And perhaps he was just very strong as a man. I believe Jesus was a very strong man. She looked at her son who was bloodied, the exhaustion on him, perhaps just even the breathing, which was very, very difficult. And she watched as the Roman soldiers, with hardness of heart and cruelty, shoved those, uh, pounded those nails into her hands and into his, into his hands and his feet. And she watched as her son hung there. And the Bible says there that Mary was there, and the mother and her sister was there, and Mary, the wife of Cleophas, was there, and Mary Magna was there. And notice verse 26. You would think that while this is all going on, that Jesus, like the criminals that were there, would be seeking sympathy for him. Then he would be seeking pity from others. But it's not Jesus is the one who's seeking sympathy. And it's not Jesus the one seeking pity. And not Jesus there seeking people to feel sorry for him. Instead, it is Jesus exercising sympathy for those nearest to him, those whose hearts are grieving, those whose hearts are broken, those who are weeping and grieving because of what went on there. And you'll notice this in verse 26. The focus is here. It says, Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. And he saith to his mother, woman, behold thy son. As he did so, he is saying to her, Mary, look at me. Mary, look at me. He says, mother, look at me. Women was a dignified, refined way of addressing his mother or older women at that time. We would not do it today. It would be much of a, in our culture, would be disrespectful. Probably most cultures would be disrespectful to call your mother woman. And if some young person is thinking about doing it, I would advise you not to do it. Or you might be crucified by your mother. Amen, you know. But uh, I would just tell you today that uh, it would not be a very dignified way of addressing your mother. But uh, that was a dignified, refined way you would do it at that time. And he cried out to her. This is not the first time, but as an adult man. He wanted her to recognize there is now a, a distance between him and Mary in the sense that he came to fulfill the will of the Father. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom as a sacrifice for sin for many. And so Jesus is on this cross and he looks at his mother and she's grieving because she's watched all the things that have gone down. She's watched her crucifying. She's watched the bleeding. And she watches something even more humiliating. If you go back to verses 23 and 24, we have the story there about the soldiers forced soldiers who gamble away all that Jesus had left in his life. you got to remember, Jesus, all he had, literally, when he went to the cross, was the clothing that was on his body. His sandals, his clothing, his outer tunic. Notice what it tells us here. The Bible says in verse 23, the soldiers took his garments and made four parts, every soldier a part. And then notice references given to us, and there's a reason why God does this, about the coat that Jesus wore, which you notice this. It says, and the coat 
Now, and it says, and also his coat, and it says the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. We get to verse 24, and they looked at this coat, which was basically the tunic that a young man would wear. And in this case, it was a tunic that typically a Jewish mother would make for her son. And uh, typically, it was, it was symbolic, it was similar to the tunic that, or uh, the, the, the garment, the inner garment that the high priest would wear. And if you study your Bible over in Leviticus, Leviticus 21 tells us that the high priest was not to rend his garment. That would be a desecration of the office, a disrespectful to the office for him to tear his garment anyway. And we read a little bit earlier about this in the chief priest. The chief priest, one of them was so angry with Jesus and his remarks, he actually rent his garment, he tore his garment, which basically in doing so would disqualify you from even being a high priest. But Jesus, in wearing this tunic, if you would, was symbolic of the fact that he was God's high priest. He was our great high priest who went to the cross for you and I. The Jewish high priest would take a lamb once a year, and he would offer a sacrifice for sin. But Jesus became our lamb. Jesus became our sacrifice. And you'll notice this. The greatest gift a mother would give would be making this tunic and this coat that she would give to his son. We read over in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that as Samuel was a little boy, that his mother had committed him to the service of the Lord when he was a baby. And around the time after she weaned him, maybe he was about three or four years old, she brought him to Eli the priest. And as she committed him to Eli the high priest, there he would live the rest of his life. But the Bible says something very interesting about Hannah, his mother. Every year Hannah came, and the Bible says she gave him a little coat. That little coat represented that, that, that undergarment, that tunic that was made for the high priest. And so Jesus has this one but most so important garment that he had. It was made by his mother, his mother's loving hands. It was made by his mother and given him as kind of a gift of saying, son, I want this to stay with you forever. I want this to always be a reminder that you were set aside for God's service, that you're set aside for the work of God. And this garment was made, and Mary's watching these soldiers, notice verse 24, as they, they speak among themselves, and the Bible says they said, let us not rend it, but cast lot for it who shall be. Now the soldiers were wise enough and smart enough because they knew that if you tore that garment, garment apart, it would lose its value. There was no seam to it. It was woven from top to bottom. What a picture of the holiness of God. What a picture of the, of the life of Jesus Christ, seamless and whole altogether. What a picture of the fact of his deity, that he was 100% God and 100% man. And Jesus and Mary knew all this, and she watches these, the, the last piece of garment, that he, the last thing that he owned in all this world, that, the, that these soldiers, they gambled for, they cast lots for. And the Bible says that the scripture might be fulfilled. They Parted my raiments among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. And Mary's revisiting now what, what Simeon told her back in the day, back on the eighth day of his of Jesus' birth, when she when she um brought him to the temple with Joseph, and they dedicated him to the service of the Lord. And Simeon, who'd waited for the consolation of Israel, the Bible says, she brought him up, and Simeon took the baby Jesus and held him in his arms, and he realized he was holding deity in his hands. And he realized, though this was baby, this was the creator of all the universe. And though this was a baby, this was the sinless son of God. And he's only was a baby, he recognized, looking years ahead, that this would be a baby that would become a man, and this man would die for the sins of all the world. And as he held that baby, Simeon looked at Mary, and he said, Mary, he said, I'm going to tell you something. A sword shall pierce through thy soul, which will hurt you many, many, for a long, long period of time. And Mary, right then and there, as she watched this crucifying, as she watched the garments being sold, that her soul is being pierced and hurt. I mean, Mary is in need of help. Mary's about to burst inside. I don't know about you, but I can remember there have been times when there's been grieving and times when there's been hurt, when inside you just feel like you're about to burst. You feel like you don't even know if anybody understands what's going inside of you. You just feel like there's not enough tears and not enough buckets that can contain the tears 
are going to shed and the horror inside of your soul. And Mary's at this place, at a place that only a mother could know that she's feeling this sorrow and this emptiness and this and there's this hole inside of her heart. And she's feeling, does anybody know? Does anybody care? And you know, it, it could have been, Jesus could have been like, the, like these criminals next to him and say, don't you feel sorry for me? But it's not Jesus asking people to feel sorry for him. It's Jesus even there at that moment of being crucified and hurting and sorrow and suffering that he's exercising sympathy on Mary, his own mother. May I tell you this morning, there's sympathy at the cross. No matter what your hurt may be, no matter how broken you might be, no matter how overwhelmed you may be, no matter who insulted you, no matter what someone has done to you, no matter what something degrading that's happened in your life, may I remind you, encourage you this morning, there's sympathy at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ today. He said, woman, behold thy son. He's saying, Mary, I'm doing what God, the Father, sent me to do. I'm going to tell you this morning, maybe you're not hurting right now, but there's a day coming in your life because there's nothing new under the sun. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to give birth, and there's a time not to give birth. And I remind you today that there's going to be a time in all of our lives when sorrow will come and hurt will come, and we're going to be looking for sympathy. And I'm thankful that as we find our Savior here in verses 25 to 27, as he's suffering there, there's sympathy that he exercises. And then notice something else here. He looks at Mary and he says, Mary, I just want you to know, look at me. She said, I'm more than just your son. I'm the son of God. I'm the one that can heal your soul. I'm the one that could touch the hurt that you have. Then if you notice, Mary, Jesus is showing such great sympathy, not just for the needs of his mother spiritually, but also for the need of his mother physically. Look at verse 27. Then saith he to the disciple whom he loved. Who was that? That was John, the Apostle John. The Apostle John was the only one of the apostles who made his way after they all fled from the garden. He's the only one that made his way back to the foot of the cross there. And he stood there with the, with the four women there. And he turns to that disciple and he says to him, Behold thy mother. What a great thought here. Listen, as he talked to John, he was telling John, John, he, listen, I have, I have some half-siblings. And he says, they, they're still at home, but they're still kind of right down the place where they're not really sure about who I am. They haven't put their faith in me. They're somewhat doubtful about me. But he said, John, you love me, and John, you care for me. And he committed the care of his mother physically and financially for her future all the way to John. He said, John, I want you to take her. And what a wonderful thing it is that there at the cross, Jesus committed, if you would, the adoption of his mother to over there to, to John. He said, John, I want you to adopt my mother, Mary, into your home and to be part of your family. Hey, can I tell you something this morning? When you get saved, when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you're adopted immediately into the family of God. And to as many as received and to them gave he power to become the sons of God. There's sympathy at the cross. But you notice the second thing this morning. There's not only sympathy at the cross, but you notice the sinners at the cross. Where we have Mary and we have these other women. We have John who are needing their burdens carried and their, and their lives being touched and their burdens are being lifted there at Calvary. But we see something else. We see a, a large company of people that are here at the cross. And I want you to notice this with me, please. We see sinners at the cross. There's nobody righteous at the cross except for Jesus Christ. And I want you to visit with me some of the faces that went to Calvary on that day day. Notice, first of all, we see the faces of the religious. Go back with me a few verses. Notice verse 6 and then verse 15, verse 21. We see the face of religion, the faces of religion. Verse 6 says, when the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him. And then again in verse 15, they cried out. And then later on, the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And then again in verse 21, we read, then said the chief priests. Now the chief priests 
and the elders and the scribes, and if you went the Sanhedrin, as they were called, all of them represented religion. They represented the organization of religion. They represented people that were self-righteous in their own respect. These were people, and when it came to religion, they dotted the I's, they crossed the T's, they did everything right, they, 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 they clothed themselves right, they tithed. The Bible says, in fact, they even tithed mint, and they tithed well, they were on time. They prayed and they fasted. They did all those things. They did all of the, if you would, the rituals. They did all of the ceremonies. They had all the works. But listen, on the inside, they were like rotted bones. They were like an open sepulcher. They were in, on the inside, they were not true and genuine. And they were people that represented religion. Can I tell you this morning, as we look at these chief priests and these people, religion crucified Jesus Christ. Religion impaled our Savior to the tree. Religion put Jesus to the, to the cross here. You see, this morning, religion is trying to find some good work some good way to get yourself to heaven. But I remind you today, good works alone will not save us. Good works themselves cannot get you to heaven. There's not enough good works you can do. There's not enough good works you can find. Good works will not save us. And I'm reminded today in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 tells us, Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, by the working regeneration by the Holy Spirit of God. I remind you this morning, you may be a good person, thank God for that. And you may be a good church attendee, thank God for that. And you may have kept the ceremonies and the rituals, you've been all those things. But religion in itself, good works, cannot save you. Religion put Jesus on the cross. We see the face of religion. But you notice somebody else here in chapter 19, and we spent some time looking at him last week. But you notice the rogue at the cross. There was a rogue, and that rogue there, that sham, that hypocrite that was at the cross, was a man by the name, if you would, was a man by the name of Judas Iscariot. Judas was chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12 apostles. Judas was as close to Jesus as any man could be. Judas was trusted with the money that they had in the ministry, which wasn't very much. The Bible says Judas held the bag. Judas went about wherever they went. But Judas was never saved. Judas was an unbeliever. Judas followed, but Jesus never received. Judas followed Jesus, but he never received. Judas got to the place where he got tired of Jesus and became skeptical of Jesus and became contemptuous of Jesus. He represents the picture of hypocrisy. You see, hypocrisy is when on the outside I look good, but on the inside I'm not really real, that I'm not really the, the real deal there. And if you would, Judas represents those who put Jesus to the cross. He represents the fact that hypocrisy put Jesus Christ on the cross. Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He brought this chief priest and the soldiers, 600 people there to crucify by Christ. The religious were there. The rogue was there. Would you notice the ruling was there? There was the face of Pontius Pilate. And we saw last week how Pontius Pilate, that he said he found no fault in Jesus, and yet he caved in to the pressures of men. You know, he was, a, he was a politician every way of the word. He tried to wash his hands clean, but he found that they were forever stained with the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, in the chief priests, we see religion and good works trying to make their way to God, but it's insufficient. We see in Judas, we see hypocrisy representing a false image of Jesus, but we see in Pontius Pilate fear and cowardliness. I'm going to remind you today, it wasn't just religion that put Jesus on the cross, and it wasn't just hypocrisy that put Jesus on the cross. It was fear and cowardliness. May I tell you this morning, maybe you're here today, and you've heard the invitations over and over and over to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe you've heard that invitation, but you've yet 
to receive Christ. You're afraid to exercise faith. You're afraid to repent of your sin and call on the name of the Lord to save you because you're afraid of what your mother will say. You're afraid of what your father will say. You're afraid of what your friends will say. You're afraid of what everyone will say. May I tell you this morning, I would be more concerned what God has to say than what your friends have to say. You need to be concerned what God has to say about the matter. And listen, Pontius Pilate, he tried to wash his hands clean, but the truth of the matter is he was forever stained with the blood of Jesus Christ. The ruling, if you would, are those who would pass laws against Jesus Christ and pass laws against his local New Testament church. They would pass laws against that which is true and right and biblical. Now I remind you today, there comes a day they will stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment to give an account of the fact they rejected Jesus Christ. We see the ruling, we see the rogues, we see the religious. Would you notice the riotous? The Bible tells us there were the Jews that stood around the cross. There was a mob mentality as they started chanting out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jews came about out of the city of Jerusalem because they saw these two notorious criminals being crucified. These two men, they called them malefactors. They were thieves. They were murderers. They were heartless people. They were, they were men that didn't care of anything about society. And so they just saw this Jesus bore his cross and went to the hill of Golgotha. They just assumed that Jesus was just like those men. You know, it's interesting how people just join a crowd just because they think it's the cool thing to do. Or they just want to get a part of something because they think, well, I need to stand against something. Maybe the government's wrong and this is wrong. The church is wrong. And all of these people, these faces of the Jews, were people stirred up by the chief priests and the religious leaders. And what they wanted more than anything else is we read the story here. We read about the fact they wanted Barabbas released and not Jesus. They wanted a hardened criminal who should have gone to the cross released to them, but instead, uh, uh, who should have gone to the cross, they wanted him released to them, and so they wanted Barabbas instead of Jesus. And these people, if you would, many of them there, they were probably good people, but they were not saved people. And these people were, I would say, I would characterize them as being ignorant people. They were ignorant about the fact of who this really was. May I remind you today, it just wasn't hypocrisy that put Jesus on the cross. And it wasn't just good works that put Jesus on the cross. And it wasn't just religion put Jesus on the cross. And it wasn't just those who were fearful put Jesus on the cross, but those who were ignorant. Listen, as they'll tell you in law, you cannot cite before the great white throne judgment that you were ignorant, that you did not know. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night knowledge. There is no line, nor language where their voice is not heard. Then you look at the signage that Pontius Pilate put there on the cross, on verse 19. And the Bible says he wrote the statement, Jesus is now the king of the Jews. And we're told in verse 20, that when he wrote it, it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. I'm reminded today that there, that signage, there, the signage pointed to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It represented his sovereignty. It represented the fact that he was the son of man. It represented the fact that he was the son of God. It represented the fact that underneath that sign, a savior was dying for the sins of all the world. It was very clear to everyone Jesus was on that cross. But I remind you today, those Jews who shouted against Jesus and they said, give us Barabbas. These were the ignorant. Don't say this morning that you didn't know. Don't say this morning that God didn't warn you. Don't say this morning that you didn't get an opportunity. If today was the only time you heard God's word preached and today was the only time you heard it was important for you to trust Christ as your Savior and to get saved, God will hold you accountable to that. Listen, there's a judgment day for every sinner. It's appointed to men once to die. And after this is the judgment. And on that judgment day, you can't say, well, I, I, I didn't know and I didn't 
to understand, you've got God's word, and you've got a preacher, and you've got friends here at the church who can show you that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by him. I remind you this morning that ignorance crucified Jesus. But notice, if you would, there's another group of people. There were the religious leaders, and there was Judas, and there was Pontius Pilate, and there were the faces of Jews whose names are not mentioned, but then there were the faces of the soldiers. The soldiers represent who I call the ruthless that were at the cross. These soldiers, this was not the first crucifixion these four soldiers were at. They'd been to many crucifixions. And just like anything else that happens in life, over a period of time, they just became hardened and callous to the sufferings, to the wounds, to the punishment, to the dying of an individual on the cross. Nothing about that touched their lives. They were hardened and they were callous. And remind you today, hardness crucified Jesus. Are you hard this morning? Are you hardened and hard and callous in your soul that you've heard the preaching of the cross so many times that you just feel like, oh, here he goes again. I don't, and just you turn it off and your heart is hardened. I remind you today, if there's ever a day you need to respond to God, today is the day you need to respond to God. Today is the day you need your heart softened and sensitized to the fact Jesus died for you. Christ died for your sins. And then what you notice, there were the regulars that were at the cross. That's like you and me. You and I put Jesus on the cross. Our mind this morning, we could go through every category. There are the thieves on the cross. The thieves represented the rebellious. But every form and manner of humanity is represented through the cross. You've got the religious to the rebellious. You've got the ruthless to those who are rogue. You've got those who, are, who would claim ignorance there. Listen, everybody there that was there represents what's in this room. All of us, our sins, put Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus came to die for sin. He became sin for us who knew no sin. We see this morning the sympathy of the cross Christ gave sympathy to Mary. Christ exercised care for his mother even during his dying moments. Christ exercised care to those who were suffering in their hearts. He was more concerned about them than they could have ever been for him. We see Christ there hanging on the cross and all the faces of sinners. there. But you notice the third thing this morning. But you notice the sacrifice at the cross. Go back with me, verses 16 to 18. And delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. Perhaps unless you're a student of Roman history and world history, crucifixion and the cross would not mean much to most people. Here, because of the Gospels, God wanted you and me and every individual of this world to never underestimate, never take lightly the sacrifice that happened on the cross. You see, a sacrifice is when you give up something that's important to you to help somebody else. Sacrifice is when you feel the pinch in your pocket. It's you give up something. 
you might sacrifice your time. You might sacrifice a day. You might sacrifice money. I'm thankful for a, a, a very loving and giving church. And church, I commend you this morning for 483,000 committed to the work of missions. To help get the gospel propagated around the world. To help some of our works, those missionaries we are supporting, though we cannot be there physically with them, that we can help support and fund some of the projects and things to get the gospel to people. And you set aside money through faith promise that you could have used for other purposes, but you set it apart as a sacrifice. And I'm reminded today that as we look at sacrifice, there's many things we sacrifice, but the greatest sacrifice a person can give is the sacrifice of their life. The Jews were familiar with sacrifices. They were familiar because part of their culture, part of their spiritual upbringing was the sacrificial lamb. The sacrifice of a lamb. There was the Passover offering, which they were about to partake of in just a few hours. There would be the sin offering that would be done on a daily basis for their sins. There would be peace offerings and other types of offerings like that. And these offerings and these sacrifices were done so that they could represent something given in exchange for something else. But I want you to notice as we read John chapter 19 and all the gospel narratives, the greatest sacrifice that ever occurred was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins and mine. There are some words that the Bible uses that are very significant to that. We think of the word atonement. Atonement means he paid the price for us. Atonement means he took our place for us. There's the word propitiation, which means the sacrifice or payment price for sin. I think of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where the Bible says, But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, listen to this, Christ died for us as sacrifice. I think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. He was the sinless, dying for the sinner. He was the Savior, dying for, the, for sinful men. He was the just, dying for the unjust. We see Jesus Christ in his sacrifice. What sacrifice did Christ give? The sacrifice he gave was something he spoke about in John 15, 13, just a few couple chapters before that. He says, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friend. Listen, you might sacrifice time, and that's great. And you might sacrifice money, and that might be great. And you might sacrifice a few days, and that might be great. And you might sacrifice whatever, something like that. But the greatest sacrifice that could ever be given is laying down your life for someone else, and even more so, laying your life down for people that you don't even know, that don't even comprehend what you're all about. And Jesus did that for you and I. Listen, there was a sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Notice it was that sacrifice included suffering. And would you notice there was painful suffering? The suffering he endured was shameful. Stripped of his clothing. Out of decency and modesty, most depictions of Christ on the cross show him with at least a loincloth on. So we go back to John 19 and we see these, the soldiers gambling away his garments, including his inner garment, which was his tunic. There's a very strong possibility that Jesus Christ was bare naked on that cross. The Son of God, the shamefulness, everything he had was gone. He was spat on. He was reviled. Blasting, blasphemous things were said about him. I mean, there was shameful suffering. Listen, there was great emotional suffering. I mean, Jesus experienced what you and I go through when we go through the valley. The Bible tells us there in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was perspiring and great drops of sweat came out like equivalent to the drops of blood off his forehead. 
And we think about the emotional suffering. I mean, we just, you know, you can't describe emotional suffering. But Jesus said this, when, when it turned 12 noon and God made the whole earth dark, that whole area became pitch black and darkness. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there he's crying out, not just something prophetically, but expressing to us the emotional suffering that he was going through. Listen, somebody goes through emotional suffering, we need to have empathy and we need to have sympathy and we need to have concern because we don't understand what's going on in their soul. We don't know the depths of grief they're feeling. We don't understand how hard they, how hurt they may be. But we must understand, when they're going through emotional suffering, they need someone like you and I to be there. But nobody was there for Jesus at that moment in time. Nobody really understood the emotional suffering that he went through. And I'm going to tell you this morning, Jesus endured the shame for you and me. When Jesus endured the emotional suffering for you and me, he endured all that so that your sins could be paid for in full. But notice something else. We see the shameful suffering and the emotional suffering. But there was the painful suffering. They took that, they took that Roman, the Roman cat of nine tails, and at the end of each one of those leather straps, there were these little balls, wood, round balls it would put, or little scraps of metal. And as they, as they beat the back of that individual, and the individual who, who, who inflicted the punishment was someone who was expert in plying the, the scourge. He was expert in knowing how exactly how, how far back to, to, to heave this, this, this whip and, and to apply it to the back of the individual. And as he did so, he did it with the right momentum, with the right amount of strength. And it would just not just beat the person's back, but it would lash his back and it would lacerate his back and it would tear away at the chunks of flesh. And many, many, many people that were injured and hurt by scourging, they were bloodied mess. Their back was a bloody mess, and they would never never recovered. Their back would be all talacerated and torn and beaten up there. There was the scourging. There was the crown of thorns that the soldiers, someone had made, took a, some, maybe some rose bushes with thorns that were sticking out there, and they thrust it on the head of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you did would, they did this as a mockery to the fact that Jesus Christ was God, was the king of the Jews, and he's the king of all heaven, the king of all ages. But they didn't mockery of it. They didn't think he was anybody's king. They just said, look at you and who you are. You have nothing. You have nobody's, you have no clothing. We've gambled your clothing away. We've gambled your shoes away. They put this crown of thorn on his head to inflict embarrassment and shame to him, but they did so to hurt him, and they never took that crown of thorns off. They left it on there in a mocking manner towards him. There was a scourging. There was a crown of thorns. There were the nails that went through his hands. They say that the nails were about seven inches long, if you can imagine that, that pierced right through his hands and pierced right through his fist, impaling him through his feet, impaling him to the cross there. There were the repeated beatings before he went there. There was the loss of blood. There was the asphyxia and increased difficulty in breathing. I mean, it was awful, awful, painful suffering Jesus went through. Hey, listen this morning. The Bible says he was the just dying for the unjust. Christ once suffered for sins. He suffered. He went through the valley. We cannot explain the suffering. I've been by the bedsides of people who've gone through some terrible illnesses and they've suffered. I've been at the bedside of those who've been injured in automobile accidents and they've suffered quite terribly. I've seen some that were injured so badly that they, the flesh was torn off and you could see the bone exposed. I've been by some where they've had major surgery and they couldn't sew everything back up and there were open wounds there and you could see the pipes going in and things. I mean, kind of a, just a very ghastly scene to see that. But nothing could compare to the suffering of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to tell you this morning, when we think about the sacrifice there, there was the suffering in that sacrifice. Jesus endured painful suffering. But notice something else. In this sacrifice was suffering. In this sacrifice was his personal substitution. Christ died for us. He took our place. He didn't just represent you. He died for you and me. Amen? He took our place. He was an acceptable substitute. He was the only substitute. 
He was the only one that could shed sinless blood because he was the only one who was ever sinless. He was our substitute. I think about the scriptures, Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. Galatians 3, 13, Christ became our curse. Hebrews 2, 9, he tasted death for every man. 1 Peter 2.24, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. I want you to understand something this morning. He took your place. He died for you. He died for me. Because if he didn't take our place, it would be me dying for my sins and you dying for me. Thank God this morning for the perfect substitute. Amen. Abraham Lincoln died. They held a service, a funeral service for him there in Washington, D.C., the family wanted his body buried up in Illinois. They brought his body back up to the city he was born in and grew up in. And they planned out that day a carriage drawn by horses. And behind that would be on a, a cart, the casket containing the body of President Abraham Lincoln. And the people of that city, because they were very fond of the fact he was born there, and of course they were great citizens at that time, they lined up for miles across this pathway, which would be an all-day processional. And it got to places, they got ready for the processional. The people lined up, there was no spot, or there was not much of space left for anyone to get in. It was so tightly knit with people there. Just a little bit before that, our president signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which sometimes we need to go back and remind ourselves of the great price that was paid and the great criticism he endured for signing that document, and the great freedom that it gave, the dignification it gave to people. A woman who was forever grateful that she was a beneficiary of the Emancipation Proclamation approached that line. A little boy, maybe about five, six, seven years old, very short little boy, she tried to squeeze her way in. She couldn't squeeze past anybody. She wanted just to get enough space so she could stand there and watch the carriage go by. And after trying different spots along the lineage there, she realized there's no way I'm going to squeeze through. And she heard the galloping, the clop, clop, clop of the horse-drawn carriage. And the wheels making their way slowly across that, that, that road. A thought came to her mind, if I can't stand there, I'll pick my son up high enough so he could see and she scooped down, picked up her little son, scooped him up like this, got a little bit heavy for her. She let him down a little bit, then she just got enough strength. She picked him up again. He said, Mama, what am I looking for? What am I looking for? She said, listen to the horses. And she said, as the horse carriage, the horses, the carriage was drawing near with the casket of the president, she said, honey, look very carefully. Honey, look very carefully. He died for you. And I remind you this morning, look very carefully on the cross. He died for you. Charles Spurgeon said this, my entire theology be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. There was sympathy at the cross. There were the sinners at the cross. There was the sacrifice at the cross. Would you notice something else? Would you go with me down? The verses 28 and 30. We're almost done. The Bible says in verse 28, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, 
It's three o'clock in the afternoon. The Jews have already appealed to Pontius Pilate and say, listen, we've got, to get, we've got to get those bodies down. Jewish Passover is coming. We can't have any bodies on there. To touch a dead body or come near it disqualified you from participating in the spiritual things of Israel, these bunch of hypocrites. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. They're rushing things along. For six long, agonizing hours, our Savior has been hanging on that cross along the way. Even to a place for us, we became numb, and the weight of his body being so heavy, he's hanging there. And as he did so, it was a catch 22 because as he hung down to try to find relief and to just not have all the pain go through him, he found that it became increasingly difficult to breathe. And as, it, as uh, different things were forming inside of his body, and there was a lack of oxygen forming inside, and the blood was coagulating, it became increasingly more difficult. And his lungs were filling up with fluid, and fluid was building around his heart. And most, if not all, victims of a crucifixion died from his. Asphyxiation. It was just from the fact they could breathe no longer. And Jesus, there is at that place, he's had no water. They offered him some gall, and he said, I'm not going to take that gall. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to defile myself with this gall. And so you can imagine, he's gone mo maybe for 24 hours without in, with sufficient amount of fluid. He's dehydrated in his body. Whatever remaining fluid he had, if it hadn't already flown out of his body, had accumulated itself inside of his lungs, inside of his inner body there, and make his way around his heart. And medically speaking, he's on the verge of dying. I mean, kidney failure is setting in. A heart attack is about to happen. He's about to die on the cross. And the Bible says, Jesus, knowing all things is accomplished, he makes one more, one more push-up, and he cries out, I thirst. With whatever strength he has, he says, I'm thirsting. He's recognizing, listen, I can barely get the words out. My, my throat is parched, and my tongue is swollen. And he's thinking, I can't say, I can't do much more. He said, I thirst. I thirst. And as he did so, one of the soldiers we find in verse 29, the Bible says, there was set there a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and pulled it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And I don't know about you, but trying to just trying to drink apple cider vinegar, a tablespoon of that, that's pretty nasty, amen, you know. And uh, they, put that, they put that vinegar in his mouth, just they put it on a little swab there and touched his tongue with it. It was just enough moisture. It was bitter. It was acrid. But enough moisture that it loosened up his tongue and it moistened his lips and it moistened his throat. And with that little bit of moisture as he glustered up all the remaining strength he had and all the energy that was left in him, which you notice verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said with a loud voice, he said, which is recorded in the English language in three, three words, but literally in the, in the Greek language it's one word. He said, it is finished. Tetelestai. And when he cried that out, it was unexpected from, it was an unexpected cry from all of the people. But when they heard it in their culture, they understood the term Tetelestai. Because Tetelestai was a word that you would use to talk about the consummation of a transaction. Listen, for a servant to cry out Tetelestai, it meant, sir, the task you gave me, it's done, Tetelestai. It was the word of a priest that when an animal was being evaluated there in the temple before it would be sacrificed, they would examine this animal. Is it a lamb of the first year? It is does it have any blemish? And when it passed all the qualifications and it was not hurt, it was not maimed, it was not crippled, the priest, the pass it on, he would say, Tetelestai, which meant that the animal would be passed on. It was the word of an artist. When an artist would work painstakingly at a rendition of something he would do, and it was all finished with the finishing touches, the artist would look at that painting and we'd say something like this, Tetelestai, which means it was all said and done for. It was the word of a merchant. When a merchant finished a transaction after haggling things over with, his, with the buyer, when they were agreed to terms and it was done, and 
and they signed off everything, and the payment was made, the person would shake his hand, and he would say to that buyer, to tell us that which would mean was done. I want to tell you this morning, our Savior knew that those people needed to understand that the sin debt would be paid in full, and the sin debt was canceled out, and the sin debt was paid in full, and there'd be a zero debt balance. They wanted everyone there to understand God's requirement for sin was paid for in full. There was no more need for an animal sacrifice. There was no more need for an individual to die on the cross. There was no more need for sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ, by the which will, died once and all for sinners. I want to declare to you this morning, Jesus, when he cried out, it is finished, he declared for every sinner going forward in eternity, sins are paid in full. You don't owe a sin debt to God. There is no zero balance. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. To tell us that. Tsar Nicholas I, before the turn of the century, entrusted the son of a good friend of his with the care of money over a certain responsibility. The young man did not really fathom how important this responsibility was. As he collected and garnered this money, he kept the ledger books. No one inspected it, or he thought no one would inspect it. And the boy started to siphon some money off and went to gamble. Siphoned a little bit more off and he started to gamble. He gambled some more. And the reckoning day came. He recognized he gambled all the money away. He tried to create a double set of books. It didn't work. The ledger book represented there's amount of money that he owed. He didn't have the money. Pondered for several days, what am I going to do? The boy became desperate. The boy became fearful. The boy decided one thing, which I pray you'll never would do. I pray you'll never would do this. I'm going to take my life. The desk he sat at, he had the ledger book. And he wrote in that ledger book this, this phrase, a great debt, who can pay? A great debt, who can pay? The evening started to wear on. He'd been thinking about it and thinking about it so much for several days. He was mentally and physically exhausted. He dozed off in the chair. As he dozed off in the chair, he found himself, his head just popped on his hand. He was on the table. Czar Nicholas that night was making rounds as he typically would do. When everybody else was asleep, he'd make rounds. He'd check the soldiers' tents. He'd check the quarters. He'd check the rooms. And this one room, this, I, I'll call it the treasure's office, for lack of a better term, he saw a candle was flickering. He said, why is the light on in there? He said, I can't imagine why he'd be up doing the books this late at night. And he walked inside that room. He saw the young man, exhausted, fast asleep, his head on his arm. Tsar Nicholas would have moved on except for he noticed, he said, why is the ledger book open? What could he be doing that he's up so late at night with a candle still burning and the ledger book open. 
Tsar Nicholas looked at that book and he saw quickly this young man had done something with the money and it wasn't good. And it meant that if he was found out, he would die for what he did. They'd have to kill him as a punishment for his crime. Tsar Nicholas looked at the bottom of that ledger book and said, a great debt, who can pay? Great Tsar Nicholas, though he was the czar of all of Russia, and he had the very right to condemn this young man, also thought about the fact he watched this little boy when he was born grow up, become a boy, and become a young man. And he knew, he remembered about this young boy's father and how he loved his father so much. And Tsar Nicholas, as he saw that he wrote his name in there, Nicholas! The boy woke up. Kind of like Abraham, which we read about in Genesis 15, horror of great darkness was on him. This horror of great darkness on this young man because he woke us as man. I've got to, I can't make it. I've got to take my life. He looked one more, took one more glance at the ledger book and he looked at that phrase that he wrote down there, a great dead who can pay. And he saw in big bold letters the name of Tsar Nicholas. It said, Nicholas will pay it. Nicholas is there. He thought, ha, my king will pay it. Can I tell you something? You and I have got a great dead who can pay. But thank God we've got a savior. His name is Jesus. And Jesus wrote his name in his blood. And he said, I will pay your sins. And he's paid your sins and mine in full. There was a satisfaction at the cross as we close this morning. Would you notice one last thing we're done? Verse 34 says, the soldiers came and they pierced his side. Forthwith there came out blood and water. When blood and water came out, it represented he's truly dead. The soldiers knew that. Because there'd be the profuse amount of fluids that would come out of that side represented all the fluids in his body that accumulated there. It also represented the fact as they pierced aside, Jesus literally died of a broken heart for every sinner. And John, as he's witnessing all this, John, who wrote down the words, it is finished. He wrote this down in verse 36, and we're done. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Excuse me, go back to verse 35. And he that saw it bear record... And his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. Now, this morning, there's sympathy at the cross. There are the sinners at the cross. There's the sacrifice at the cross. There's the satisfaction at the cross. But I want to tell you this morning, there's salvation at the cross. You can be saved today. You can be saved today. Christ died for your sins. Religion put Jesus on the cross. The rebellious put Jesus on the cross. The hypocrite put Jesus on the cross. The regulars put Jesus on the cross. But thank God today, Jesus died for every sinner. He satisfied the sin debt in full, and salvation's available at the cross. I want to say this today, and we're done. For every sinner here today who's not saved, if you've been in church, I'm thankful you've been in church. But if you don't know for sure you're saved, today is the day to get saved. Today is the day to behold the Son of God as He died on the cross for your sins. He offers you the gift of eternal life. And may I say this, by the way? He's, he's not on the cross anymore. He, he rose again from the dead. Amen. He conquered sin, Satan, and death for you. 
And today you can be saved. On this 22nd day of September, you can be born again into the family of God. And then for every Christian here today, may the death of Christ and what he endured for you and I move our heart and motivate us to live for him, to abound for him, to serve him. There are many here today, you're saved, but you haven't taken that next step to grow in the Lord, to join the church, to get baptized. Those are the next steps to show obedience to the Lord. I encourage you this morning, why don't you take that step forward? Because when you think about the sacrifice of Christ, he did everything for you and I to make it possible. I encourage you this morning, don't leave here today the same way you came in. May just this visit we had at the cross be an unforgettable moment that will change our life, that will help us to realize as Christ sacrificed himself for us, whatever we do for him pales in significance in terms of what he did for us.